let us pray. So Father, we pray that even now we would be filled with awe and thanksgiving and submission to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you this morning. And good morning to everyone watching via the live stream as well. We're so glad that you've joined us. I want to remind and encourage everyone to participate in our Holy Week services this coming week. And um, I'll have more to say about that, about that at the announcements. But let me just say this, and I've been saying this since I came to All Saints Church four years ago yesterday, actually. Um, but, um, oh, I wasn't pausing for that, but thank you. <laughs> um, it's wholly inappropriate to jump from the triumphal entry to Easter Sunday without walking with our Lord through his suffering and his death and all that that entailed. It really, you know, you can't jump from one mountaintop to the other without walking through the valley. And I think we need to walk with Jesus this week um, as we reflect upon all that it took for him to give his life for our sin and to rise from the dead vindicated by God victorious. So again, I would encourage you to be a part of the services. All of them will have Eucharist every day um, if that works in your schedule, but especially this Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night Easter vigil. Um, and we have childcare for all those services as well. So I um, encourage you to adjust your schedules accordingly. I invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with scripture on them and turn to the 21st chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel. And today, as we commemorate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and begin our observance of the events which would rapidly unfold during the next seven days, I want to focus on the triumphal entry. But I also want to say this as we begin. This week is important not simply because of the Christian calendar. This week is important because if it were not for the events we remember and commemorate during the next seven days, we would have no reason for being here this morning. Our salvation hinges upon the real historical events we commemorate over the next seven days. Focusing on Matthew's account of the triumphal entry this morning, the events we are looking at in scripture, today, in scripture today were like a giant supernatural siren which should have riveted the attention of every single person living in Jerusalem, especially the religious elite, those who knew best the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And Jesus' entry into Jerusalem certainly did gain the attention of many for a variety of reasons. But some whose attention should have been grabbed were oblivious or their attention was piqued in a wrong way because of sinful self-serving motives and because of their lust for power. So my sermon today is entitled, Who is this? Because it is the question posed and in part answered in Matthew 21 verses 10 through 11. Now Matthew 21, 11 recognizes Jesus as a prophet. Everything about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is packed with prophetic significance. And Jesus is keenly aware of this. He was clearly and carefully making a series of statements through his actions and through these events. 
things were not starting to spin out of control. Jesus was in full control of the events that were unfolding. And Jesus understood the prophetic significance of everything that was happening. As these events unfolded, the people of Jerusalem asked, who is this? And as you and I today ask the question, who is this? Along with the inhabitants of Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago, I believe that God's word speaks to us profoundly. It speaks to us in ways that should and must radically alter our lives as we gain an understanding for the first time or understand these things all over again in a fresh way who Jesus really is. So who is this? First and most importantly, this is the King, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, now come in human flesh to accomplish his Father's eternal will, yet never ceasing at any time to be the supreme Lord of all. Picture the setting in the days and weeks leading up to these events. For quite some time now, Jesus had been speaking to his closest disciples of the need to go up to Jerusalem. And the disciples did not really want to hear and believe the reason for all of this. That Jesus did indeed need to go up to Jerusalem, that he would be betrayed and would suffer, and that all of this was part of the Father's plan. Remember, going up to Jerusalem is right on the heels of Jesus having raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, which we heard in our gospel reading last Sunday. And even in going up to Jerusalem, we read in Matthew 20, 29 through 34, how Jesus miraculously restored the sight of two blind men. So imagine the disciples' excitement. Imagine what they were thinking in terms of going up to Jerusalem. And certainly now there was a crowd surrounding Jesus, a crowd who at least understood firsthand that he was a miracle worker. But how does Jesus demonstrate his divine kingship in his entry to Jerusalem? Who is this? This is the king. And the fo our focus today is primarily on four ways Jesus was making this statement regarding his divine kingship as he entered Jerusalem. And as we look at these four ways, it's my prayer that we would understand and grasp the implications and the application for our lives today in a fresh way. Who is this? This is the king who requires our all. In verses 1 through 3, we see Jesus sending two disciples to requisition a donkey or a colt, or a donkey and her colts. He gives the simple instruction to his two disciples that if anyone questions them, they are to simply say, the Lord needs them. Sometimes we want to make this kind of a mystical event. The reality is that the owner probably knew Jesus, and while we cannot say for certain that the owner was a disciple, he certainly was someone who respected Jesus as a teacher or rabbi. But the clear statement being made here is that Jesus is king, even in this request. The biblical truth is that as king, Jesus has full right to the possessions of those who are under his kingship. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 16 makes it clear that king specifically had, to write, had the right to take the best animals, and donkeys are specifically mentioned. 
1 Samuel 8:16. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. Kingship, though, is about much more, brothers and sisters, than possessions. If we are believers, we must continually submit ourselves to Christ's kingship in our lives. That means not only our possessions, money, things, and stuff, which all do ultimately belong to him. Rather, we are not just to submit those things. We are submit to, Christ, to submit to Christ the entirety of our lives, all that we are, because if we are his disciples, all that we are is rightfully his. It's a theme we've heard repeatedly moving through Lent. He is the Lord and owner of anything and everything in creation. And that certainly includes our very lives. How much are our lives submitted to Christ's kingship? This theme of obedience has come up time and time again as we've looked at our Old Testament readings throughout Lent this year. What areas of my life, what areas of your life need to be more fully aligned with Christ's priorities and the values of his kingdom? Where do we need to more fully surrender to him and invite him into our lives to have even greater, a greater measure of control? I'd encourage you this week with me to ponder that and ask the Lord to show us by his spirit and take even fuller control of our lives as we surrender to him. Who is this king? This is the king who requires our all. Secondly, who is this? This is the king who the prophets foretold, verses four through five. Jesus understood that every move he made entering in Jerusalem was packed with prophetic significance. He was making a series of powerful statements about who he really is. He is king, the Messiah, the savior and deliverer of Israel. But what does Jesus specifically do with his entry to show this to people in a prophetic sense? Well, two things. First, we see this statement being made in that Jesus came from the Mount of Olives and entered Jerusalem from the east. If we look at where the procession on Palm Sunday in scripture began, it began on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was a place Israel associated with the coming of God's kingdom. It was from the Mount of Olives later that very week that Jesus would give his most extensive teaching about the signs of the end of the age in Matthew 24 through 25. It was from the Mount of Olives that in just a few weeks, the resurrected Jesus would ascend back to his father, Acts chapter 1. And it's upon the Mount of Olives that scripture promises that Jesus will first set foot on earth when he comes again in all of his glory. Zechariah 14 verses 3 through 4 speaks of this. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Entering Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives spoke prophetically of all that Jesus was fulfilling. The second way Jesus demonstrated the prophetic significance of all of this was that he came riding on a donkey. 
He shows that he is the king that the prophets foretold by riding on a donkey. That Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey was a direct fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, which we heard read out in the atrium this morning, is a direct quotation of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And entering Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus is clearly and intentionally fulfilling prophecy and making a clear, powerful, and unequivocal statement. I am he, I am the one, I am the Messiah. And God makes this same, same statement to each of us through the testimony of the Old Testament prophets, through his written word in the New Testament, and through the voice of the Holy Spirit. How have we responded? How do we continue to respond to the truth of God's word speaking so profoundly of who Jesus is? Who is this? This is Jesus the king who the prophets foretold. So Jesus is the king who requires our all. Second, he is the king the prophets foretold. And third, he is the king who comes in peace. Jesus entered on Jerusalem on a donkey as we've just heard to make a clear statement that he was the prophesied Messiah but he was also making a clear statement that he is a king who comes not as a triumphant conqueror and warrior, but the king who comes in peace in verses 6 through 7. Remember what Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, a text we usually read at Christmas from Isaiah 9? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. In the ancient Near East, kings who came as conquerors entered cities on stallions. Jesus entered on a donkey, not because a donkey is some lowly animal as we sometimes think, but because donkeys and mules were animals ridden by kings when they came in peace. And again, Jesus is making a clear and powerful statement that he is the king. And there are multiple examples, if you go back and look through the Old Testament, of kings entering cities riding on either donkeys or mules. He is not only Lord and king of the beasts. He is not only Lord of his followers. He is the rightful and eternal ruler over Jerusalem, the one who will eternally sit on David's throne. He is the king who comes in peace. He is the king who alone brings true peace, not the kind of peace that so many people were expecting, but rather Jesus brings a peace that is much more profound because he brings us peace with God. In Colossians chapter one, St. Paul writes these words, and you who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus is the one who makes it possible for those who willingly submit to his kingship to live at peace with God because Christ has removed that enmity 
and he makes it possible for us to live at peace as much as is possible within us with our fellow human beings. Ephesians 2.14 For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down his, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Most immediately they're talking about Jew and Gentile, but people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue brought together, brought together to live in godly unity and in peace with God and with one another by the power of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And beyond that, as his people, he calls us to be people who sow in peace. That means even with our enemies, while we still speak truth, we sow in a way that reflects the peace and the love of God. Peace is not, brothers and sisters, a compromise of the truth. It is the truth. Peace, a demeanor of peacefulness, is a fruit of the Spirit. Love of enemies even when they still despise us, is, is part of God's plan as we sow in peace and are his peacemakers. Does our demeanor, does our language, does our way of interacting with the people in this world reflect Christ? Does our demeanor reflect that we desire to see them, people created in the image of God, come into fullness of relationship with him? There's so much of this that is contrary to that in our current culture, even in the church. I saw someone, a Twitter feed of someone who is a um, fairly noted Christian speaker this week who referred to someone in our government, someone I would disagree with, and I'm not being political, I'm just making staying the facts, but referred to that person as a piece of scum in his Christian Twitter feed. That is not acceptable to the Lord, brothers and sisters. That is not a Christ-like demeanor. I say that with all humility, but anytime I as a Christian, as a child of God, or we as God's people, call another person, no matter how much we disagree with them, creating the image of God a piece of scum, how does that reflect the one who took on the form of a servant and humbled himself even to death on a cross? Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus is the king who comes in peace. Jesus is the king who brings peace. Does he require anything less from us than that we be bearers and givers of his peace that comes from God? Who is this? Fourth and finally, this is the king who brings a new kind of revolution, verses 8 through 10. This was Passover week. There were thousands of people going up to Jerusalem at this time. They were walking because pilgrims walked. But Jesus rode specifically to signify that he came as a king, not as a pilgrim. Again, attesting to the reality that Jesus knows what's going on. He is in full control. He is keenly aware of the prophetic significance of every step that he takes. But his kingship was not to be inaugurated by some sort of political revolution. That's what the Jewish authorities and Roman government officials feared. And they were continually vigilant and on guard against insurrection and political unrest. And there were probably many there that day who thought that that's how Jesus was entering as a, a political 
king. And that's probably why some of them went ahead of the procession and placed their coats on the ground in front of him because that's something you did with political rulers as well. It signified their submission beneath his feet. For some, yes, in a spiritual sense, but for others, in a temporal sense. Even if many of them wrongly understood things in mere temporal and political terms. But there were also clearly others who really understood. Those who acclaimed Jesus in verse 9 understood he was some type of king. They shouted, Hosanna. They also understood that he was a prophet. But the branches, specifically palms branch, palm branches, as John's gospel notes, say much more as well. Follow this. Because palm branches were only used in religious processions. Yes, this was a king, but he was bringing a new kind of revolution, not a military or political revolution, rather a spiritual revolution. He was making claim to his rightful kingship over Jerusalem and its religious institutions, including the temple. But his revolution was one that first took place in the hearts of men and women. A revolution not of political liberation, but a revolution of the heart. A revolution of the heart where God breaks in and makes things new, where God breaks in and changes us, changes people, and sets them free and makes us something we could never be through our own efforts and our own strength. A revelation through which the transformed lives of those who willingly submit to his kingdom rule by them and through them, this world is transformed in a way that is truly revolutionary one by one, one person at a time from the inside out. How has he supernaturally revolutionized your life and my life? Are our hearts and lives continuing to be submitted to Christ? to him and to the priorities and values of his kingdom so that we're molded into his image. Most of Jesus' ministry had taken place away from Jerusalem. At his birth, the scriptures tell us that Jerusalem was disturbed by the news. Now with his triumphal entry in Matthew 21.10, we read that the city was stirred. Literally, the idea is the city was shaken. His entry forced all of Jerusalem, every person to confront the question, who is this? And their answer, and the failure of the leaders and the aristocrats to answer this correctly, led to the direct fulfillment of God's necessary plan. Because this king, just a few days later, was enthroned on a cross. For them, and for you and me. In order that all of God's promises, all of God's mercy, all of God's kindness toward us and toward them could be displayed in a way that could never be repeated by anyone else. In order that our sin could be judged in him and we could be made new creations in right relationship with God through Christ. We've distributed palm branches today and if any of you didn't receive these as you came in, please make sure you get a palm before you leave. But as you take these palms with you today, let's be mindful, these are not just nice, nostalgic mementos. But just like they did for many that day, let them signify my submission and your submission to Christ's kingship. 
let them remind us of the coming day that is spoken of in Revelation chapter 9 where we read, excuse me, Revelation chapter 7, where we read, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who is this? Like all of Jerusalem, this is the question with, the, with which each one of us is confronted this day. And the answer is this. This is Jesus, the King of heaven, the ruler of all, the one who wills and died so that we could walk in right relationship with him and that he could be Lord of our lives. So as we move into this holy week, may we ask him and we reflect on, is he Lord and King of my life and your life? And is he Lord and King of our lives in full? And if not, where do we need to surrender more fully to him this week? Let us pray. Father, thank you for your incredible mercy that we've heard proclaimed in the reading of your word this day from Isaiah, the prophets, in both the triumphal entry and Christ's passion. And in St. Paul's letter to the Philippians where we read of Christ, the eternal son of glory, who humbled himself and came in the form of a servant and submitted himself willingly to death, even death on a cross. So Lord, fill our hearts with thanksgiving. Fill our hearts with awe. Fill our hearts with rejoicing. But Lord, at the same time, fill our hearts with a sober-mindedness and a genuine grief and mourning that it took the shed blood of the eternal son of God to redeem us. And that all of this was on our behalf so that broken rebellion sinners that we are could be made new creations in you. And Father, I pray that this week by your spirit, you would continue that work of new creation in our lives as we submit and surrender to you more fully out of love. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.